Greetings, you're listening to podcast number 111 of Blast the Right. I'm your host, Jack Clark. Great to have you on board. Today, you'll hear a whirlwind tour of my thoughts on right-wing Christians, especially on how you can effectively debate them. Let's get right into it. The sources you'll hear include the Old Testament, the New Testament, various official documents of the Roman Catholic Church, including papal encyclicals, and the New York Times. First up, and the centerpiece of this week's show, is my equivalent alternative solutions challenge. Right-wing Christians, from the roots of their right-wing ideology to the fruits of their policies, violate the most fundamental of the teachings of Jesus regarding how we're to interact with our brother and sister humans. These teachings are most powerfully expressed in the 25th book of Matthew, verses 31 to 46, the parable of the sheep and the goats. This is extraordinarily important, so even if you're not Christian or not of any religious bent at all, still listen up. It's critical to your being an effective progressive advocate that you know this stuff. It's the basis of my equivalent alternative solutions challenge. Please be aware that the word stranger in the Bible is a synonym for refugee and immigrant. On Judgment Day, before Jesus, quote, will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them, the sheep at his right hand, the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see thee hungry and feed thee, or thirsty and give thee drink? And when did we see thee a stranger and welcome thee, or naked and clothe thee? And when did we see thee sick or in prison and visit thee? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see thee hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to thee? He will answer to them, Truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment. I wasn't raised a Christian, but when I read this for the first time, it literally blew me away. It still does. I'll now show you how to use this Matthew 25 passage to irrefutably challenge right-wing Christians, especially in each and every situation where they oppose a plan to reduce human suffering. You tell them, it's fine to oppose government programs to help the Matthew 25 least of these, as conservative Christians usually do, but to avoid violating the Matthew 25 injunction, Conservative Christians must then propose their own equivalent alternative solutions. 
equivalent alternative solutions are ones which help the same number of people who legitimately need help, provide at least the same amount of assistance, get the help to them at least as quickly, and are at least as certain to accomplish these goals. Equivalent alternative solutions can certainly be completely non-governmental, as long as they meet the four criteria I just mentioned. But the fact is, conservative Christians consistently both oppose the plans of others to help the least of these and fail to offer equivalent alternative solutions of their own. Conservative Christians, whether voters, politicians, or talk show hosts, must be challenged. What about Matthew 25? If you oppose my plan to help some of the least of these, what do you propose instead? How does what you're espousing here fulfill what Jesus commanded in Matthew 25? In fact, isn't what you're doing exactly what Jesus condemned in Matthew 25, not helping the least of these? Well, that's the equivalent alternative solutions challenge. Right-wingers won't have an answer, if my experience is any indication, but they'll raise any of a host of objections to the challenge. Let's go through them comprehensively, so you're prepared for whatever is thrown back at you. Before we do so, you should be familiar with Catholic social doctrine. This will both frame your responses to right-wing objections and provide the means to refute charges that you're just advocating socialism or the like. I've distilled Catholic social doctrine into eight overarching principles. Each of my principles is backed up by usually several solid citations from official Catholic teachings. You can check these out in my church teachings document linked to on my data resources page. Here you go. 1. The world's resources were meant for all to share equitably so that each individual and people have a sufficient share. 2. The market alone cannot address all human needs and its shortcomings need to be addressed. 3. The existence of unjust political and economic structures, structures of sin, must be recognized and these structures changed. 4. Demonization of the poor is wrong. 5. Quite the contrary, we must exercise a preferential option for the poor. 6. Concrete actions to help the poor, not pious wishes, are required. 7. Individual acts of charity are not enough. Social, political, and economic policies must be addressed. And finally, 8. These social justice principles and the preferential option for the poor apply internationally as well, and therefore fundamental changes in global economic structures and practices are necessary. Pretty radical economics and otherwise, no? Hardly the stuff you hear coming out of the mouths of such self-professed, avowed Catholics as Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly. Mention these eight principles the next time a right-winger says you're just espousing Marxism or something. Tell them it's bedrock Catholicism. It's certainly true that many Protestants won't take Catholic social doctrine as dispositive, but it's certainly a defense against the charge that what you're saying is not believed by any credible Christians, that it's just the ignorant, out-of-context ravings of a left-winger. Right-wingers have to come up with a better objection than that. 
Okay, on to the major right-wing objections you may hear to your equivalent alternative solutions challenge. Probably the most common one is, this passage from Matthew only applies to acts of individual charity. The response is, Matthew 25 neither says nor implies any such thing. If anything, the contrary. Jesus gathers the nations who speak to him collectively as we. Beyond that, should a passage such as Matthew 25 be interpreted narrowly so as to avoid responsibility? Would anyone seriously maintain that Jesus would say, it's okay for society as a whole to let people suffer and die as long as some people give some money to charity? You are individually held to account under Matthew 25 for your individual one-on-one -on -one acts of charity or lack thereof. But in a democracy, you're also held to account under Matthew 25 for how the political actions you take influence your society in its treatment of the least of these. As Pope John Paul II has written in this context, the structures of sin must be corrected. Quote, it's a question not only of alleviating the most serious and urgent needs through individual actions here and there, but of uncovering the roots of evil and proposing initiatives to make social, political, and economic structures more just and fraternal. Our daily life, as well as our decisions in the political and economic fields, must be marked by these realities. You can also tell your right-wing Christian friend that the Old Testament itself makes clear that God will hold an entire nation responsible for its wrongful acts towards the poor, that is to say, for its political acts of omission or commission. And, speaking logically, while misfortune can be cured by charity, structural systemic injustice, the structures of sin described by Pope John Paul II, Structural systemic injustice can be cured only by structural systemic solutions. Charity can provide a sometimes critically necessary ambulance for the victims of structural systemic injustice, but charity alone cannot provide the cure which will stop the creation of future victims. Another common objection to the equivalent alternative solutions challenge that you may run into is, Jesus didn't say have a government program to feed the hungry. True, and so what? Jesus never said to use a government program, and he never said not to use a government program. Similarly, Jesus never said to use private charity, and he never said not to use private charity. Matthew 25 doesn't say how or how not to help Jesus in the guise of the suffering. It just says you must help them. So again... The reply to the conservative Christian is, if you oppose a government program, what's your equivalent alternative solution that will help the same number of people, the same amount, as soon and as certainly? And of course, this Catholic social doctrine, which as I mentioned before, calls upon political action to help the least of these. It's critical to note here, Jesus didn't live during a time when there were democracies, where the people decided themselves how to spend their tax money. If Jesus knew about democracy, you can bet he'd be the first to say there is a Christian duty in a democracy to advocate that the entire society, using the society's tax revenue, take care of the least of these. Do right-wingers think Jesus would say, okay, 
Just give whatever charity you want to as individuals, and if the problem is too big for individuals to handle, don't pressure your government to help. Because after all, even more important than feeding the hungry and helping all the least of these, is making sure the government is small. Another related right-wing objection. Government is inefficient or corrupt. You can say, yes, the government sometimes has problems when it institutes reforms. But certainly my plan is going to be better than nothing. It's still going to help many of the least of these. Again, you need to always go back to this. Challenge the right-winger. What is your equivalent alternative solution that will help at least the same amount of people, the same amount as quickly and as certainly? Just criticizing my plan isn't a valid objection. You have to come up with a better one yourself. Objection number four. A right-wing Christian may argue conservative Christians do have plans to help the poor, and that certainly satisfies the Matthew 25 commandment. The response. Their plans are inadequate to fulfill the Matthew 25 mandate. Conservative Christians consistently advocate courses of action which by design don't help all those legitimately in need, or will help them inadequately, or will help them for too short a time, or are much less certain to take effect. If that's the case, Mr. or Ms. right-wing Christian, you're not Matthew 25 compliant. You've done exactly what the cursed are condemned for in Matthew 25, giving the hungry no food, the thirsty no water, the naked no clothes, the sick no medical care, not welcoming the stranger. To take but a recent example, George W. Bush's health care plan would only help one out of ten uninsured Americans. Many progressive plans would help all uninsured Americans. Which plan would Jesus favor? Related to this is objection number five, as someone wrote to me. Letting the free market help the poor is the best way. Sorry, a legitimate Matthew 25 effort can't consist merely of vague words and hopes. Rather, it has to be a concrete and specific plan. Merely spouting an ideological platitude as a catch-all solution is transparently a means to avoid actually trying to solve the problem. As you heard in my eight principles earlier, official church social doctrine agrees. It says, Christ's words, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me, were not intended to remain a pious wish. The motivating concern for the poor must be translated at all levels into concrete actions until it decisively attains a series of necessary reforms. And also let me add, People working full-time for less-than-starvation-level wages aren't served by a free market. The legitimate critical needs of multitudes around the globe are not met by the free market. Again, a part of Catholic social doctrine. And again, you're insulated against criticism that you're mouthing socialist dogma. You're actually pointing out the implications of the gospel itself. Coming up, Yet more right-wing Christian objections to doing what their own Lord and Savior commanded them to do.
thanks for all those five-star reviews that keep coming in on iTunes. They're countering the one-star sabotage reviews from right-wingers. Keep them coming in. You only have to do it once. It's not a monthly thing. You do it through the iTunes software, not directly through the website. Over on Podcast Alley, we're currently number seven, and I appreciate the votes there as well. If you haven't voted yet this month, please do so. There you have to vote every month. We can spread the progressive word on Podcast Alley as well. Thanks. Next are some objections you may hear related to intention. One is, to quote an email I received, Matthew 25 wasn't meant to call upon the government to force people to give. Well, in a democracy, you're forced to give to countless numbers of government programs, such as defense, highways, medical research, all the time. Assisting the least of these is a perfectly legitimate function of government. So in a democracy, if the people decide collectively to help the least of these, that's not forcing people to give. It's allocating the resources of the society in a democratic way. And to make it clear if it wasn't already so, I'm not saying you must use the government to accomplish Matthew 25. Do it without the government, but the operative words are do it, not just vaguely express hopes for it. All you have to do is implement an equivalent alternative solution, which will help at least the same number of people the same amount as soon and as certainly. But anything less, and you're violating Matthew 25. The related objection is, as put to me, if a law forces people to give something they truly in their hearts don't want to give in the first place, that type of giving is simply a dead work which God hates. I don't disagree. This objection is really raising the issue. What about those who oppose a government effort to help the least of these, and the plan is implemented anyway? Do these objecting people then get the benefit under Matthew 25 for being part of a society that helps the least of these? I agree with the question's premise. These objectors would not get any Matthew 25 benefit. Indeed, the very point of the equivalent alternative solutions challenge is that those who object to efforts to help the least of these without offering an equivalent alternative solution of their own are precisely those people who will be considered to have dead faith and will go to hell. Now we get into some of the really mean-spirited objections to your equivalent alternative solutions challenge. How about, these people made bad choices in life. Their suffering is the result of decisions they made. Well, so is getting cancer the result of what you eat, smoke, breathe. In the Bible, God didn't tell the enslaved Israelites it's their own fault. God didn't express to the Israelites the vague hope that Pharaoh would change his mind. God didn't tell the Israelites to be self-sufficient and free themselves. God took the Israelites out of Egypt. The lesson is, there are some situations where the suffering simply don't have the means to help themselves without outside assistance. This certainly applies to children, doesn't it? In a similar vein is the most vicious objection I have people write into me, referencing a biblical proverb. To quote one instance, If you don't work, you don't eat. That's what it says. This is demonizing the poor. Ask anyone who would put forth such an argument, How many people do you really think this applies to? Is there anyone who would starve to death rather than work?
What about the people slaving away in agricultural fields who don't earn enough to feed their families but are picking the food for you to feed yours? What about the children? Are they lazy bums who refuse to work? Did they make bad choices in life whose consequences they must now live with? Such an attitude towards the poor is part of a creeping demonization of the poor which right-wing Christians seem particularly to excel at. Do they not remember that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were a homeless family? Again, as I told you earlier, official church teachings, in words seemingly directly addressed to right-wing Christians, explicitly warn against a demonization of the poor. Quote, It will be necessary above all to abandon a mentality in which the poor, as individuals and as people, are considered a burden as irksome intruders trying to consume what others have produced. The poor ask for the right to share in enjoying material goods and to make use of their capacity to work, thus creating a world that is more just and prosperous for all. Okay, wrapping this up briefly are objections of a theological bent. One is that only by faith can you be saved in a Christian sense. As one person wrote into me, try a little better job next time in stretching the truth. Specifically, salvation will come only through the grace of God, through Christ, never through works or actions as you allude to. The fact is, both faith and works are required. As the New Testament says, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Catholic social doctrine agrees, quoting, For the Christian people of America, conversion to the gospel means to revise all the different areas and aspects of life, especially those related to the social order and the pursuit of the common good. Involvement in the political field is clearly part of the vocation and activity of the lay faithful. Finally, I often get harangued with the judge not lest you be judged passage. My response? Okay, judge me. In fact, Jesus says he wants us to evaluate the actions of others. He says a sound tree cannot bear evil fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Thus you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. As a progressive Christian wrote to me about right-wingers, I know we shouldn't judge people, but my Lord and God said that it's a good idea to be a fruit inspector. I've inspected their fruit and listened to their rhetoric and find it not in agreement with the Old Testament and the New Testament. All right, that's it for right-wing Christian objections to the equivalent alternative solutions challenge. In sum, you right-wing Christian who may be listening, an endless string of excuses not to help those in need is not to follow Matthew 25. Would you give these excuses to Jesus? If Jesus Christ came back today and was sitting across from you, and he said that you must feed all the hungry in the world right now, would you tell Jesus what you've just told me? Would you give Jesus Christ such lame excuses? Well then, don't give them to me because Jesus Christ is now right across from you in the words of the Bible I've pointed out to you. As many of you know, I call right-wing Christians pseudo-Christians. If a program is designed to save lives, 
food, medicine, drug rehab, etc. And right-wingers defeat it or cut it back to help fewer people or not as much. Then the result of such right-wing pseudo-Christian behavior is more human misery, suffering, pain, and death. For example, the sick die because they wait to go to the emergency room for treatment until they're horribly ill when it's too late to help them. Or people don't get preventive screening tests for cancer and tumors aren't discovered in time for effective treatment. According to a federal government advisory body, 18,000 people die in the United States every year because they don't have health insurance. A real Christian, someone imbued with the Spirit of Christ, advocates more help for the suffering, not less. And less is what the right-wing pseudo-Christians advocate. This is the essence of the pseudo-designation. You can't be a true Christian if the focus of your life is thwarting others and the society itself from fully implementing such a fundamental teaching of Christianity as Matthew 25. You can oppose government programs, but then you must propose your own equivalent alternative solutions. And right-wing Christians virtually never do. It bears repeating. This is precisely why it's not tax and spend liberals who are evil, but rather the deny and destroy, cut and kill right-wing pseudo-Christians. I swear to you, a third category needs to be added to Matthew 25 sheep and goats to separate out the merely negligent or personally stingy from major league sinners like right-wing pseudo-Christians who actively seek to thwart those trying to help the least of these. If you want to learn far more details about my Equivalent Alternative Solutions Challenge and the entire subject of right-wing pseudo-Christians, please check out my 50,000-word essay entitled Matthew 25, 31-46, What Would Jesus Do? Jesus would send all these right-wing pseudo-Christians straight to hell. I don't pull any punches, do I? This essay is in the form of a dialogue between me and a composite right-wing Christian. It's online at my website, www.rightwingpseudochristians.com. Search for right-wing Christians in Google, and my website is the third or fourth result. I'll now close. We've entered the Christmas holiday season. You may have already heard Bill O'Reilly and others babbling on about a war on Christmas. No, Bill and all you other charlatans. The only war being waged is your war against the poor, against the hungry, the sick, the stranger, against the least of these, against Jesus himself, incarnate in the very body of the least of these. This is a war you right-wingers incessantly wage, 24-7, 365 year in and year out, with your ideology of greed and cruel, kill the poor, kill Jesus in effect, policies. My goodness, what more need be said than that according to his administration's own figures, George W. Bush has presided over an increase in poverty since he took office. So, dear listener, in the spirit of the season, why don't you use the Equivalent Alternative Solutions Challenge with your friendly local right-winger in hope of guiding him or her to see the light and perhaps avoiding the Matthew 25 Judgment Day fate of that uber right-wing pseudo-Christian George W. Bush as I envision it here.
Jesus then turns towards George W. Bush. You are not welcome in my kingdom. I was hungry and you did not give me something to eat. I was thirsty and you did not give me something to drink. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and you did not look after me. George plaintively asks, Lord, when did I not do these things for you? Jesus replies, Whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not for me. You were given stewardship over a vast treasure, and you used it to bring comfort to the already affluent at the expense of helping the sick and the impoverished. And even worse, you've viciously attacked those who were helping my beloved least of these. George W. Bush, you have not done justly, you have not loved mercy, and you have not walked humbly before me. Despite what you may think, you are not my good and faithful servant. And then come the words, a truly and justifiably petrified George W. Bush fears the most. I think you know where you're headed now, George. Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend about Blast the Right and vote for Blast the Right at podcastalley.com and write a five-star review for Blast the Right in the iTunes Music Store. A special shout-out to all you Live 365 and Red Dragon 365 listeners. Great to have you on board. Please consider coming over to the homepage, subscribing for free, and then you can download and listen to any episode of the podcast anytime you want. You get to the podcast homepage by typing in Blast the Right in Google, and I'm the first result. Thanks to Ellen from Kansas City for helping with this week's podcast. And also, thanks to Doug in Phoenix, Arizona, for quickly providing a link last week to the audio file of the FDR speech that was featured. A programming note, until January there probably won't be any more live shows, just the regularly scheduled numbered shows every other week. I have some personal business that must be attended to. Music credits! The break music was L.A. Nightmare by 22 Caliber and Not the One Blues by Burnsheet Thornside. We'll close with a little bit of Catapult the Propaganda by Nye's Music. Links to all the music I play on Blast the Right can be found on my music resources page. Links to all the statistics and quotations I use can be found on my data resources page. Both of them are linked to off the main podcast homepage. Please keep all those great comments coming in. My address is rational at roadrunner.com. I'm still catching up, slowly but surely. You can also call in and leave a comment for me to play on Blast the Right. Dial 310-933-5891 and leave your message. You can also leave a message on Skype. My Skype name is Jack from Blast the Right. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right-wing misguided souls. In my line of work, you got to keep repeating things over and over and over again. You got to catapult the propaganda. Catapult the propaganda. Inspector Charles Golfer has now issued a comprehensive report that confirms the earlier conclusion of David Kay that Iraq did not have the weapons that our intelligence believed were there. Um, it turned out that we have not found any stockpiles. I think it's unlikely that we will find any stockpiles. I don't know anybody in any government 
or any intelligence agency who suggested that the Iraqis had uh, nuclear weapons. That's, that's fact number one. What has not stood the test of time was the judgment we made that there were stockpiles of 